0: Hi and welcome to my podcast. I'm your host Jason and you found a fun and secret time capsule for my baby son. Each episode I sit down and chat with a special guest about friendships, pop culture, parenting, and whatever strikes my fancy. Really the end goal is to make sure that when my son does eventually discover this he's thoroughly embarrassed. In the meantime I'm not quite sure where each episode or where the show was going but getting there should be half the fun. All right. Uh, Well, hello and welcome to Half the Fun Podcast. Uh, My name is Jason. I am joined by a very special guest, Jen. Hello, Jen.
1: Hi, Jason.
0: So, Jen, you and I are both old friends and definitely we've traveled a lot together. Do you want to tell everyone a little bit more about how, how that came about in terms of us traveling and what you used to do?
1: Sure. Um, I am the former director of international admissions at George Mason University, which means I helped international students from around the world apply to George Mason uh, to study undergrad or graduate programs. And through our recruitment and marketing, um, that's how Jason and I met. We used to do tours around Asia to recruit more international students.
0: It's true. And uh, one of the byproducts, uh, definitely, it's very uh, long and busy work. And we'll probably do a a blog post about that uh, maybe later. But basically, we had very small snippets of time during our travels together that we had free time. um, Because we definitely worked uh, 20, sorry, (laughs) probably like 14, 16-hour days consistently with no... uh, Hello, Spock. Uh, Your cat is, I see, jumped up on the...
1: Yeah, just when I thought he was going to control himself by looking out the window.
0: That's rude. Um, So one of the things, one of the small joys that we had in terms of uh, trying to keep ourselves sane was uh, having a lot of different food adventures too, which was a lot of fun. So I thought that that would be a really great short topic to talk about today, um, just in terms of some of our different food adventures and maybe some burgeoning advice for anyone who also wants to explore good food while they travel. Yes. Yes. (laughs) terrific uh so let's kick things off um i think we've both chosen some fun food memories uh from our past travels do you would you like to start with whatever your first choice uh, topic is
1: sure um well by far my favorite food memory from our travels is definitely anything that we well pretty much everything that we've had um that we've eaten together in japan Mm -hmm. was really cool um, traveling through Tokyo with you and being able to experience your passion for, for the, I'm sorry, this, I don't know what this cat's problem is. Okay. Um, I apologize for that. Um, so um, as I was saying, my, by far my my favorite uh, travel food experience is anything that we've been able to share together in Tokyo. Um, your passion for Japan and living in Japan and Japanese cuisine is definitely evident um, everywhere that we went. and as we as we traveled around and you I feel really lucky to have been able to experience Tokyo with you the number of times that we went because I feel like I really got a really good showcase of all of the different food options that are available in different price ranges from being able to go to Uh, natural natural lawson's is it and have and have a, a hot dog roll with spaghetti in it or sushi to going to conveyor belt sushi to fancier sushi um the robot restaurant is definitely a standout from one of our experiences in tokyo ramen super spicy ramen
0: yeah absolutely uh one of the great joys of returning to japan for work for me was um, so i studied abroad in um, both to in tokyo more or less and uh, i was definitely a very poor student at the time and i also was a a teacher um, through the jet program the japan exchange for teaching um, where i was a poor english teacher um, in osaka so i didn't really have a chance to blow my budget on like really nice food uh, but definitely returning as um, a power business traveler having the flexibility uh, to eat at some nicer places um, was definitely uh, definitely a joy. Uh, so let's see. We've definitely done a, a bunch of fun stuff there. Um, let's talk more about Robot Restaurant.
1: Yes. I knew that that was going to be a crazy experience, but I don't think I was ever able to even come close to imagining how crazy that was, I mean, we're talking women in bikinis riding dinosaurs, crazy.
0: Yeah, and um, it's in um, somewhere near Shinjuku. So it's near the downtown and it's a little bit of a tourist trap. And to say, I mean, it's it's technically a dinner show. So that falls under our purview of, of food adventures. Uh, but really it's like a boxed lunch. <laughs> and the real star is um, these women riding um all these random robot automaton type things. So it's something I've highly encouraged uh, multiple friends who visited Japan to go visit because it is, um, kind of insane. Uh, it, the website is I'll, I'll link to it in, um, the blog post, uh, sorry, the, uh, podcast, uh, description, but it's a lot of fun. Um, it's a little expensive, but if you ask, Your concierge, or if you're at a nicer hotel, they typically will have some tickets. They'll chuckle first, and then they'll give you a ticket for like a two-for-one.
1: Definitely, definitely worth it. One of the most interesting things I've ever seen in my life.
0: (laughs) Awesome. All right, so I'm going to go with my, uh, let's see, if we scroll up here. I am going to go with one of um, early on in our food career before I got super adventurous. uh, Was uh, when we were in Beijing together, we went to the Ghost Street Market, um, which was recommended to me by my uh, interpreter at our college fair. And so, uh, not having done any research, uh, we just went there and we wandered into a random hot pot restaurant. And definitely, this was a hot pot restaurant that was, I feel like, a little bit off the beaten path because they weren't really expecting uh (laughs) foreigners so uh but they did have a picture menu clutch because neither of us speak mandarin uh and so we had some delicious food a lot of beer um, a lot of locals out there or i don't know non non non-foreign tourists and one weird thing i think about the street or maybe in china in general was that there would be random musicians that would walk into your restaurant and start playing and no one would chase them out. Uh, So that was really random to have that suddenly happen while we were chowing down on all this like really good cheap hot pot, which was a very welcome break from um, some of the not good food we had uh, during our very limited time in uh, Beijing.
1: Yeah, that was definitely, and I think, you know, that was actually our first meal that we shared together traveling internationally. So that was also a really cool experience and also was the start of many food adventures to come.
0: For sure. Uh, Yeah. What is your next food adventure that you'd like to talk about?
1: For me, the next standout is uh, definitely the meal that we shared in Puerto Rico where I accidentally ordered a whole fish in addition to a bunch of other local delicacies and a giant pina colada shake. The food was delicious and we ate as much of it as we could. But I think what just the entire standout of the whole meal is, was is the sheer size of (laughs) the amount of food that we were able to consume in that time period, because it was an accident ordering so much, but we also knew how delicious it was and um, how, what a great experience it was. So we weren't able to just not finish the meal, but eat as much of it as we possibly could.
0: And one of the, to put into context, this was, um, definitely, oh, it was a while back when we went to Puerto Rico. So this was before all the disasters happening and the economic meltdown and things like that. So we went kind of at the perfect time and, um, What I appreciated about that was certainly um, you as a pretty fluent Spanish speaker um, got us around. And for that particular meal, it was kind of like a beachside shack almost, a a collection of beach shacks. Um, So definitely off the tourist uh, path. So it was both reasonably priced and um, a lot of great food. I do remember you arguing with the woman because I feel like you thought it was like a small filet of fish And so she's like, this is too much food. you're like, no, whatever. And then she brought yeah. out this whole like deep fried paired fish.
1: Yeah, I, I'm still to this day. I, I look back on that, and I really can't figure out where the breakdown in communication is because it's not like the first time that I've ordered fish in a Spanish-speaking country or a whole fish. <laughs> but I, I just, I just really don't know what happened there. <laughs> um, we were hiking in the rainforest that day, and I did get completely soaked. And as we know from other experiences, um, I just generally don't like to be out in the rain or um, get soaking wet. So I think maybe that just threw off my Spanish. I'm just not really sure what happened there, but we did a good job on all the food and it was delicious. So um, a memory that we didn't plan to make, but will forever be in, ingrained in my brain.
0: Yeah, I don't think I have a photo of that parrotfish, fish, but maybe if you do, um, we can throw it up on the blog too. Um, okay, if you scroll up, we can see the next thing here. So the next talking point, uh, would be, oh yeah. So this was a really interesting one. Um, so when we were in Kuala Lumpur, now that's a place I haven't had a chance to really explore a lot. I feel like we, uh, only we've probably spent less than 24 hours in KL, um, three ish or four times that, um, I've traveled there. So besides the Batu caves, um, this was a discovery, um, And I feel like I found in a random blog post that I'm going to try to dig up from someone who lived in Malaysia. And so um, at the time, and I think this is still true, there's a sizable Indian population in Malaysia um, doing a lot of work, I assume. Um, And there's kind of the neighborhood called the Brickyards where historically, I think, Indians made bricks, I want to say. Uh, I'm a great historian, um, (laughs) but not Southeast Asian history. Uh, So huge indian population there and so we which i think was in walking distance of our hotel um unbeknownst to us there was a lot of construction going on because they were totally reshaping uh that area so we walked through like a lot of weird construction and things like that to finally get there um it was southeast asia in october so it was like super hot and sweaty more so than usual and we finally find this uh, Visual Food Works, I believe is what it's called, which is designed more like a kind of a cafeteria for for the workers there. Um, but it uh was really good. It's um maybe you can speak a little bit more about the food since you've been to India before.
1: Um yeah it was served very traditionally on a banana leaf. And I believe the way that we selected the food was more in a set menu style. So you chose either vegetarian or um Non-vegetarian, I, if I remember correctly uh, of the food options, so it wasn't choosing individually. they had a few different set menus. Um, is that your is that your recollection?
0: Yeah, and I think we had a little bit of trouble ordering as uh, someone uh, was definitely not uh, Malaysians and definitely not as Indians. But I think they were tickle pink to um, to see us. and uh, I'm pretty sure that meal both our meals cost less than like eight dollars total.
1: For sure. And it was super spicy. So we showed <laughs> up sweating because we were walking through the soupy, humid Malaysian air to get there. And we sat down and there was no air conditioning in the restaurant. I don't even remember if there were any fans. And then they served us incredibly spicy food after we were already sweating. So I feel like when I left there, um again, just sweating profusely. I, I got there sweating and I didn't stop sweating until I got <laughs> a shower back at the hotel.
0: For sure. Um, so that was a, a delightful memory for me. Uh, yeah. What would you like to talk about next?
1: Um, I think another great memory for me is our food adventures in Hong Kong. A lot of our, our travels, we've experienced um, food, different food markets and and outdoor food stands, convenience stores. But in Hong Kong, it's, they have a, a wide range of high-end high, di- high end dining as well as local food markets. And one of the cool things in Hong Kong that I think we've experienced that it's hard to find elsewhere in Asia or maybe even other places in the world. I haven't really seen this, um, but the concept of the private kitchen where people open up their homes and create a, a small restaurant experience and the menu completely depends on whatever they want to cook that night. Um, the the ingredients that they're able to find, and so a few times we I think we went twice to private kitchens in Hong Kong, um, but the first time that we went was a really memorable experience, and I can't remember the name, and I I searched all my records for photos and things, and I don't I wasn't able to find the name in it in the time frame that we had preparing for this, but I just remember it being a really quaint nice atmosphere. It was in this office building that looked kind of shady and this random elevator but then when the elevator like opened up it there were like twinkly lights and flowers and it was a french menu and i i really enjoyed it
0: la Bout i don't speak french
1: la boutelle
0: <laughs> yes la boutelle so i think the really cool thing about um those private kitchen concept was first of all I think the only time where a travel in flight travel magazine was helpful because we were on our flight to Hong Kong and I was reading the magazine about all these private kitchens. So I think there is a website um, with the word rice in the website title that kind of informally documents a lot of these uh, private kitchens. So we kind of searched through those. Um, A lot of the higher end ones turn into real restaurants. But I think. I think there's this culture of since real estate is so expensive in Hong Kong that a lot of people do these unlicensed private kitchens as opposed to the prohibitive costs of actually starting a restaurant in Hong Kong. The other thing I really love about Hong Kong is definitely, yeah, so there's a ton of like these private kitchens, a ton of Michelin star restaurants too. Um, So it's been a lot of fun and certainly obviously a lot of like high end dim sum and things like that. So that was terrific. So yeah, definitely fun memories. And I think we were able to bring our own bottle of wine too, which helped bring down costs.
1: Oh, yeah, that's right.
0: Okay, so now that I'm driving again, so you talked about Hong Kong, Um, I'm going to talk about, yeah, so we were in Shanghai. Oh, so the next one is going to be Shanghai, which I have only been to once or twice. Um, You've been definitely a lot more. Uh, So there is a, um, and this has probably been, is now much more popular, um, but there is a crawfish or crayfish street in Shanghai, where literally it's this little block of um, restaurants that serve nothing but crayfish. And there's these giant woks with oil in it where they're like boiling them or deep frying them. And um, I'm I'm fairly sure Anthony Bourdain has, has done this too. Um, so we wander into one that was vaguely recommended by, I think, Lonely Planet. Um, and uh, obviously, again, they don't speak English. <laughs> um, and so... Definitely no picture menu this time, but we just ordered like two kilos, I think, of crayfish, and they gave you these like delightful plastic bibs and plastic um, gloves, and you're just supposed to go to town. And so, yeah, that was a lot of fun.
1: It was a lot of fun, and I remember that even with the plastic gloves. Days after that <laughs> dining experience, my hand still smelled like chili oil.
0: Oh, <laughs> all right. A
1: good, a good thing to have your hands smell like. I'm not. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I'm gonna scroll back for you. Do you wanna talk about um, the soft-shell crab place?
1: Yes, so I think we found um, this soft-shell crab place in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, in one of the magazines that we picked up in Asia. It was either a Time magazine or maybe, I think it was actually maybe a Newsweek publication that was among, and it listed the 50 best restaurants in Asia broken down by country. And I'm pretty sure that we found um, this soft shell crab place in Vietnam in that magazine. The name of it, I believe, is Quan Toy 94. Um, My Vietnamese is terrible, so I apologize to (laughs) all those that I might offend with my pronunciation. Um, But it is a a restaurant that specializes in crab dishes, uh, specifically this tamarind soft shell crab, which is amazing and once we discovered it every single time we went back to vietnam or ho chi minh city we always went to this restaurant bringing other colleagues with us ordering crab soup crab fried rice soft shell crab um chili crab tamarind crab so much crab and for an insanely low price i mean here if you get even a tiny piece of soft shell crab it's like twenty dollars a pound we were spending maybe $15 a person for all of these different soft-shell crab dishes and probably like five or six beers each.
0: And I think it's confusing because there are like two soft-shell crab places. There was like a spinoff or like someone trying to cash in on it too. Um, And I also remember it's not in a super, super popular part of Ho Chi Minh City. So I remember having a hell of a time getting a cab back too. But anyway, yes, that was super fun. Just stuffing your faces. And I Vietnam is a, is a fun place. Um, probably a little bit more challenging in terms of finding places, um, too. Mm-hmm. But we'll talk more about that. Um, I would love to... I'm going to switch and talk about... Um, Probably my last one on the list. So Singapore, uh, very excited about Crazy Rich Asians coming up. And Singapore has a lot of crazy good food and things like that. But one of the things that they even talk about in the book is these hawker stalls. So basically in different shopping centers, um, there are just basically, there'll be like a full floor in like a parking lot more or less, or covered parking lot. Um, That's open air, of course, so you're sweating uh, for just different food stalls. and so. Um, I think a favorite pastime for Singaporeans is to argue over which food stall and kind of what's the good food. Um, so we um, randomly went to a food stall and I a food center just because it was close by and convenient and recommended. And um, we saw this gigantic line uh, for congee um, for rice porridge, which usually isn't a thing <laughs> in terms of um, what's fancy and what's good. Uh, but, uh, I think we trusted our gut on that one specifically since it wasn't on like any, um, food guides or anything like that. Um, and it hadn't gotten like super popular because it had over been overexposed. So we waited in line for like 15, 20 minutes and it was hands down one one of the best kanji I've, I've ever had, which is saying something I've, I've had it a lot.
1: Mm -hmm. And I, that was my first experience with kanji, and it was quite good. I unfortunately didn't have a lot to compare it to, but I enjoyed the chicken kanji that I had.
0: And let's see. Oh, there it is. Yes. Uh, Yes, so the Zhen food stall there was delicious. You could have fish-based or chicken-based kanji, and that was really good. All right, do you have anything... Um, we can switch to least favorite food. So definitely we've had lots of hits. Um, we could fill probably three or four hours with our hits. Um, uh, but those definitely kind of noteworthy off the beaten path stuff. We've um, definitely had really good food too. Um, but I think these are really good, like street food-ish or a little bit more unusual things. Well, we've definitely had some misses for sure too. Um, do you want to talk a little bit, uh, what, uh, what food miss do you want to start off with?
1: Sure. Um, so, I guess I'll start by saying I think some of these food misses are just kind of a personal preference or perhaps my own expectations of what I've heard about things mm-hmm. um, that then once I finally try it, I'm like, wait a minute, this is it. Um, so I, I I recognize that this is probably not misses for everyone and these could be some people's favorite foods. Uh, but for me personally, I just am... I, not able to appreciate them. Um, but one of one of the first things and something that I was sort of shocked and disappointed with, and I know I'm going to probably upset a lot of people, um, but Singaporean chicken and
0: rice. Oh, uh, um, okay. I,
1: I just don't get it. I've heard a lot about it. I read a lot about it before I arrived in Singapore. And then when we tried it, it was kind of my reaction was like, that this is it, and this is made m- many different ways. And there are restaurants that serve very fancy versions of this. Um, and, and maybe we didn't go to the right place, or maybe I'm just missing the art of the dish. Um, not not to say that it tasted bad, but it was one of those those I don't know one of those those, those things in, in my my dining experiences where I had heard so much about it and. Then I tried it and I was like, oh, okay.
0: Uh, yeah, it is one of the national um, dishes of Singapore, one of the most famous things. And it's basically like a, po- a delicately poached chicken, a side of broth and steamed white rice is basically what it is. So I think it's supposed to be a very subtle dish. I do remember before we went to... Um, uh, Singapore, um, I had watched a movie, which I'm Googling right now, um, called chicken rice war, which is a loose interpretation. I believe of, um, uh, adaptation of, there it is Romeo and Juliet. Um, but they are, uh, competing families and competing chicken rice, uh, hawker stalls in the same complex. Um, so you can definitely enjoy it. Uh, subtitle it, um, cause it's definitely in Singlish. Um, But uh, I don't know where it's available. It's pretty funny. It was released in 2000. So I saw it the first year of the Seattle International Film Festival then. Um, Okay. Yes, it's definitely kind of disappointing. I would definitely not wait in line for that dish. Um, Probably the first thing that jumped to my mind in terms of um, things that we've done together is the uh, Xilin Night Market in Taipei Um, is supposed to be famous for... um, kind of food snacks and things like that too. And like the most popular dish is these uh Taiwanese oyster omelets, uh, which is basically like kind of like a lightly fried egg, oysters, and um like a ketchup y type sauce. So it's not oyster sauce, what you think about, but kind of like a kind of like ketchup. Um the is really gross. The oyster is really gross, and it's just not a good street food. And so you're both eating like oysters which i think you and i have are pretty adventurous when it comes to street food you know you know what to watch out for in terms of fresh ingredients and things like that and um maybe i just didn't have a good one but they all looked really gross and they it tasted gross and it was one of a few times where i definitely just straight up threw away the food
1: yeah yeah i i now that you bring it up i remember that and it was pretty foul <laughs>
0: Which is disappointing, and I, I would want to say Taipei in general have not been super impressed with the street food um, beyond – I've got like one – the buckwheat noodles are really good, but generally not super impressed with uh, Taiwanese street food. Mm-hmm. What do you? What other least favorite hits do you've got going on?
1: Um, the next on my list would be – and I know I started out this food review with saying that – I've my favorite dining experiences with you have been in Tokyo and really enjoying the what you have to share with Japanese cuisine. But also, I think one of my least favorite dining experiences was with you in Tokyo when we went to this ramen place that specialized in fish-based broth. And um, I don't know if you remember, it was in around Shinjuku. it was this little little place and i could probably actually walk there from from the shinjuku metro the subway stop but it i just so fishy and it the broth tasted like i was drinking ocean water <laughs> and i struggled to finish the bowl of ramen and i it just i tasted fish pretty much all night after that it just would not go away Um, And in general, I think it's, it's something that with a Western palate, there are some pretty strong ocean flavors in Asia, especially um, sometimes you find that in dishes where there's appears to be no fish present and it's really shocking and difficult to, to uh, eat sometimes. And that was (laughs) one particular situation where, and it was a late night. I remember we were there. It was late at night. We might've actually gone maybe after the robot restaurant. I really can't remember. It was later at night though. It was like a, after being out drinking type snack. Um,
0: and. It must've been night. It must've been the Nagi ramen place. Yeah. Cause it's in. Yeah. Close by. Oh, interesting. I didn't have a strong opinion one way or the other. Um, but I guess I'm uh, fish. Fish doesn't bother me that as much yeah. having lived in Japan. Um, but I will say like a traditional Japanese breakfast. I don't know if you ever had the opportunity, like when you visited Japan um, to have like a a traditional Japanese breakfast is like steamed rice, miso soup, seaweed fish that's been broiled uh, or steamed and some pickles, um, which is not the great greatest way to start the day (laughs) in my opinion. Um, And usually they're really bony fish too. So you're eating around the bones with, with chopsticks. Um, And I'm, Excellent at chopsticks, but uh, eating bony fish with chopsticks is a, is a bridge too far for me. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that's another deficiency in my Western palate is fish before lunchtime. <laughs> I, really, I, I just can't. I consider myself a foodie. I have an incredibly open mind. I'll try just about anything, but fish for breakfast I just sets, sets my stomach off for the rest of the day. <laughs>
0: Um, let's see I know you've got another one for some stuff without me I'll say that one thing that was surprising to me definitely with my limited um, kind of time in Vietnam and you've spent more time in Vietnam than I have uh, was just you would think like those banh mi sandwiches would be really abundant and easy to do but they really are just kind of like super quick street snack foods so they're hard for us to get to and like the one random one I found was just like okay um and definitely having a huge Vietnamese population here in Seattle, like we get some really killer Bon me. So to me, that was very disappointing and would not go out of my way to try to get fancy Bon me in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So you have one that I'm dying for you to talk about that we talked about in our unaired episode. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, this is an experience that I had, um, Without you, but I was, I've t- traveled extensively throughout the Middle East and uh, Eurasia, and particularly to Kazakhstan. And I've had some wonderful food in Kazakhstan, but um, a notably terrible experience was when I tried horse milk, uh, warm mare's milk, to be exact. And I, everyone said you had to try it. That's like, the thing to try when you're in Kazakhstan. However, I think it's the thing to make um, foreigners try because it's amusing to see their reaction when they take a sip and realize how horrific it is. <laughs> um, so it really, it literally tastes like if you're going to lick somebody's armpit. It has this really acidic, salty, really thin consistency. I, I just it it was. It was pretty awful. Um, and I think somewhere I can provide a photo of my reaction because, of course, I was the person at the table who hadn't tried it yet. And so people are taking videos and photos of my reaction as soon as I take a sip and nearly spit it out all over the table.
0: <laughs> awesome. And I just found a video of the Oreo Pina Colada from Puerto Rico, just right there. Um, sweet. And then... Yeah, I think we can start wrapping up by going to our last topic. So um, definitely the world has changed a lot in the 10 years uh, when we started traveling, both in terms of like smartphones and social media sites and travel sites and things like that. So people have a lot of options when it comes to um, finding slightly off the beaten path foods. Um, but let's talk a little bit about how we how we find these places. Um, and I think if other listeners would know that um, for me and also for you, it starts with a spreadsheet.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, so we, as you mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast, we were traveling on a very limited schedule in terms of free time. So we needed to really do our research upfront and know exactly where we wanted to go in order to maximize every free minute that we had for either sightseeing or having a really great meal. Um, a lot of our time was spent on, on buses and we might have had like an hour or two in between school visits and we would scout out like food dolls that might be near the, the high school that we were visiting so we were incredibly organized and spent months before every trip spreadsheeting where we wanted to go
0: for sure um some other i think helpful tips would be you know we stayed at some nicer hotels just for safety reasons and logistics reasons when you have a uh, traveling with a bunch of people um I would say, particularly in Hong Kong, um, which is uh, a super popular destination for some of the more popular restaurants we went to, we, we had to get like reservations months in advance for some of those, or um, we would work with the concierge to book us reservations too, and which was really helpful to have a native speaker um, booking um, places. Other things I would recommend um, would be like Local food blogs are still, um, I think, a preferred way to do things. Um, I think you and I have both used like ramenadventures.com, which is a, tr- mm-hmm. a terrific, it's, a, it's an expat um, living kind of in Tokyo. He does, all he does is <laughs> eat, eat and write about ramen. He's been published in Japan. I think he's been published here. Um, so that's some really great gems to kind of plan around like what neighborhoods we're going to be in and um, what kind of food uh, you can get.
1: Mm-hmm. And I would recommend if you're traveling back to someplace frequently, go into a bookstore or, or go by the newsstand at the airport or someplace and see if they have any local magazines or regional publications that recommend restaurants or, um, or different dining experiences in the area or look on the airplane, as Jason mentioned <laughs> earlier, um, because anything that's published locally would probably have a lot better information than a guide that you might buy here in the US geared toward the tourist traveler.
0: For sure, and some of those places um like Hong Kong, Singapore, I feel like those places are always changing quite a bit um particularly for the type of restaurants. Um uh certainly like Time Out um which is an Asian publication which has regional um things is also published in English, which is great. Um uh, way to find things in Tokyo in particular. Uh Sometimes, uh, you and I would accidentally stumble upon things, um, particularly if you've got a budget for it. Um, There's like the world's 50 best restaurant list, the San Pellegrino, the water people have a list, the Michelin guide. um, So the tire people have guides too. um, If you want to find those really nice, unique high-end experiences, particularly if you know you want something high-end, you've got not a lot of time and a lot of money, um, which Rarely was us, but sometimes. um, Or just finding things. um, I think one of the great things is finding things right before they get Michelin stars. uh, Just because in terms of logistics of trying to get into Michelin star restaurants can be challenging.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Any other tips? Um, Oh, I guess. Yeah. Um, What other kind of resources do you use when you are doing food research?
1: Um, I always look for like a local local blog. I use Yelp a lot. I'll always refer to TripAdvisor and sort of see what the the top restaurants are. But I, I sometimes take that with a grain of salt because you never there are so many people from around the world that rate things on TripAdvisor and list comments on TripAdvisor. And people have so many different expectations that it's really hard to gauge what might be a really great restaurant or what might or actually what might be a really great restaurant but still has a poor review because people might have expected something different or been turned off by the price or um, or something like that. So I, I look at TripAdvisor, but I really kind of take what it says for a grain of salt if I find that something on TripAdvisor has a poor review, but then a local publication or blog or or someone else who who seems to be really into food gives it a better review.
0: Awesome. Um, one thing that I've done, particularly traveling solo, um, with my independent travel, um, is sometimes just doing some really informal food tours. Um, like I've, uh, particularly done that in like Bangkok or Chiang Mai, just like street food tours, which have been a lot of fun. Um, particularly, uh, I think for folks in like, if you're going to a newer region, um, to basically have a local take you around both transportation wise to different places to order just food from different uh, food stands, particularly if it's a food you're unfamiliar with or don't know how to eat. um, It can be a lot of fun, Um, fun way to like chat with people too, particularly if you're a solo traveler um, and you don't want to go. And if you are too old for a pub crawl or something like that, Um, food, uh, food tours have been a lot of fun. Um, I've seen folks do that in Seattle uh, for like Pike Place Market. And they are actually a lot of fun. And particularly, they have arrangements typically with um, some nicer restaurants, more popular food stalls. So for me, that was a a lot of fun, particularly um, is a lot more fun than just eating by yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that's kind of um, oh, and I guess the other thing I would say is definitely staying organized. But I've used definitely Google Maps just to to mark everything um, as best I could so that um, you could get around to these places too. Definitely logistically, it can be a challenge to get places if you're scattered all over the place, for sure. So any other parting advice for would-be food adventurers, travelers?
1: I don't think so. Just keep your mind open and try everything at least once.
0: (laughs) For sure. Including Uh, horse
1: milk. (laughs)
0: But not twice. Uh, terrific. Well, thank you. I'm sure we can have a repeat uh, thing as we dig up some older, older memories. But uh, thank you so much for joining me, John.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me again.
0: Is there anything you'd like to plug in terms of Netflix or Hulu or fun books you're reading?
1: Uh, no, not right now.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, I will definitely plug uh, Crazy Rich Asians, which comes out in August. Um, Very exciting. Um, Read the book. It is fun. And I think it gives you a little snapshot into Singapore. So I'm going to stop the recording here now. Thanks for listening to this episode. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and on our host, Anchor FM. Music used for this podcast includes Live Wire by Steve Combs, With a Whimper by Josh Woodward, and Olivia by Hyson. You can email us at halfthefunpodcast at gmail.com and send us voicemails through the Anchor FM app. You can check out more photos and commentary about this episode on our website, halfthefun.fun. That's halfthefun.fun. And like us on Facebook. Want to be on the show? Drop us a line. See you next week.